through 16 tonight. Romans chapter 2, and tonight we'll take a look at verses 12 through 16 as we complete this portion, uh, this section on the moralist. Does it sound a little bit metally to you, this, this speaker, or is it okay? John, is it all right? Okay, it may, may just be me. Okay. All right, again, we're in this section on the fact that the moralist needs a Savior. Now, in, in verses 12 through 16, these verses serve as a transition between the two classes of people that Paul argues, or between two classes of people that Paul argues that are in need of justification, or if you prefer, these are two classes that are condemned and in need of salvation. The two classes that Paul now deals with are the moralist and the Jew. Nobody really would argue that the immoral person needs a Savior. Everybody's going to recognize that. Some might argue that the moral person needs a Savior. Paul's already said that they do need one because they do exactly the same things that the immoralist does that had to shock them because they might say to themselves, like the Pharisees did, I don't commit adultery, I don't steal, I don't murder. Uh, But Paul says, actually, yes, you do. Because there's an external form of the law and an internal form of the law as well. They do exactly the same things. They're just as guilty before God. Even though they may not do them with their hands, they do them with their heart and in their soul. So they're just as guilty. So now we have a transitional section that's going to transition us between the moralist needing a Savior and the Jew needing a Savior. Uh, Both of these two groups share a common attitude. And the attitude that they share is that they believe that there are classes of people that God will treat more generously at the time of judgment than he will treat other classes. Now, we're going to immediately be condemnatory toward these two classes of people for having the nerve to think that about another class of people. But before we get too condemnatory about that, make sure that we don't share the same attitude. Make sure that we don't start thinking because we're born in Texas that we're better than somebody's born in Oklahoma. Or or better yet, since we're born in the United States, God may love us a little bit more than he loves someone that's born in Ghana or Cameroon or Ukraine or Kazakhstan. Now, it's subtle, and it may be percolating way down deep in the soul. But the way you tell if you have that attitude is to challenge yourself with regard to how you feel about world missions. You feel like the African is every bit as much as valuable before God as the American is. Or would you give money in America hand over fist, but would you never contribute to a missionary? If that's your attitude, please don't tell me if it is, but if that's your attitude, guess what? You're very, very close to the same attitude that the moralist and the Jew has. So uh, a word to the wise. Be very, very careful. But both the moralist and the Jew are wrong, Paul says. God doesn't look with special favor upon one class of people or one group of people over another with regard to the need for salvation. Paul is going to conclude in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 3.9, all are under sin. And actually, uh, in, in Romans 5, all were born under Adam's original sin. So like Paul concludes in chapter 2, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Again, God is the perfect judge. His evaluations are always fair and are based on fact, not fiction, truth, not falsehood. And his evaluations are always impartial. That's a bit foreign to us because it's almost impossible for us to get a totally fair evaluation and a totally impartial 
evaluation. But Paul says, don't worry, God's evaluations are totally fair. Now, if you're trying to squeeze by, if you're trying to schmooze your way into every uh, promotion you ever get in life, you may not like that fact, that there actually is someone who's got all the facts and you'll be evaluated fairly. But on the other hand, if you've been evaluated unfairly all your life, then this may be great news to you that there is a fair evaluator out there. And God is not partial. You don't get special benefit just because you were born a Jew, for example. You had advantages, but you're still in need of a Savior. Now, in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, for, I'm sorry, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And as long as we're reading through it, track with me for the next couple of verses as well. Paul says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now back to verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Whether or not a person possessed the Mosaic Law, and here this is probably a reference to the Torah, or the first five books of the Mosaic Law, and more specifically, the Ten Commandments, because Paul's going to cite those a little bit later. That's probably what he's referring to. But whether or not a person possessed the Mosaic Law, that person still sinned and has incurred a real moral guilt before God. Now later, in this epistle, later Paul will point out that all men are born condemned because of Adam's sin. But Paul also knows that people are going to argue about that. Wait a minute, Paul. How can you say I'm condemned because of something a guy did, what, 4,000 years ago? I didn't even know that guy. You mean I'm going to go to hell because of what Adam did? I wouldn't have done the same thing. So before Paul ever gets to that wonderful truth in the fifth chapter, he establishes in the first three chapters, actually 118 through, the, through 320, that we've sinned too. So don't go, don't go around telling me that you're perfect, but the only reason I'm going to hell is because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin, you were born condemned because of that, Paul will tell us. But just in case you were going to argue about it, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and Adam both. So that will come up a little bit later. So don't argue that the imputation of Adam's sin at birth was unfair. Uh, God knows what he's doing. Those have sinned without the law, or it could be translated in ignorance of the law. Or in other words, who's he talking about there? Gentiles. The Gentiles will perish. Now this is the same word that John uses, quoting Jesus, I think, in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. That's the same word that Paul is using here, those who have sinned without the law or in ignorance of the law, the Gentile will perish, even though they didn't know the law. Now, in just a minute, Paul, Paul's going to answer perhaps a complaint you have about that. How could they be held guilty if they didn't have the Mosaic Law? Hold that question. He's going to answer it in just a second. But they will perish, Paul says, because of their sins. On the other hand, 
those who were privileged to possess and or hear the law must not think that this fact as such will be of any benefit to them before God. Just the fact that you're born Jewish does not have a benefit before God. It has an advantage. It was an advantage to have the Mosaic Law. But it doesn't mean you have a special standing in that you're going to be a little closer to heaven than someone else. You know, this is one of the most tragic forms of reverse racism I have ever contemplated in my life. If there was ever a people who have been victims of gross racism, it's been the Jew. But on the other hand, the Jew has traditionally been one of the biggest racists on the planet. And let me tell you how. Because traditionally, I'm talking about those who are not saved Jews, those who not, have not accepted the Messiah, Yahweh, as their Savior, have not trusted in, in Him and Him alone. They think, if you, if you get deep enough into the conversation, that the reason they're going to heaven is because they were born a Jew. That's tragic. And it, too, is racist. There's a, there's a terrible, terrible bit of irony here. It shouldn't be that way. I mean, people shouldn't attack Jews for sure. And the Jews ought not to think that they're closer to heaven because they're born a Jew. They're not. That's a tragedy. If they follow the pattern of Father Abraham, as we'll see in chapter 4, they're going to get to heaven. They have an advantage, as we'll see in just a minute, in, in, or in a couple of weeks, because they have the law. But they're no closer to heaven. That's what Paul's establishing in this transitional paragraph. So, they must not think that because they were born as Jews, that will be any benefit to them before God when it comes to justification. On the contrary, Paul says, hearing alone has limited benefit. Hearing the law alone, or possessing the law alone, has limited benefit. Remember James, that James is speaking to a believer, Paul is speaking to believers about unbelievers. James says, listen, I, just to hear something is not going to do any good. I want you to hear it and do it. In a similar sense, Paul is saying that about the Mosaic Law. I want you to hear it and do it. So when Paul says in verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Here we come against, against another difficult passage. It looks for the world again like... Paul is contradicting himself in the scope of just a few paragraphs. He's already told us that the one who is justified by faith will live. He's going to tell us that again at the end of Romans chapter 3, all through 4. And he tells it in, in many other places in his epistle and epistles. So what does he mean? Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Again, a point of, uh, some caution is necessary here. Don't go running off and, and um, misinterpret Paul. Paul has definitely stated that justification is not by works. In fact, in fact, there's a place in Galatians where he said it's not by the works of the law. Uh, Paul doesn't contra uh, con contradict himself. The very purpose of this letter is to show that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. No, obedience to the law led one to faith in the coming Messiah. That's what Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Abraham is the pattern for justification in the Old Testament, and he was justified or declared righteous by grace through faith. So that's what Paul means when he says those who are 
hearers and doers of the law. If you're going to fulfill the law, you're going to trust the Messiah for eternal life. Now, part of the law was to, sh to show you that you were condemned. Another part of the law, or function of the law, rather, was to show you the way to salvation. And that way to salvation was by grace through faith. Abraham is the pattern. And that's in the first book of the law, Genesis. So don't misunderstand what Paul is, is saying here. By the way, James' statement of Abraham's justification uh, by virtue of Genesis 22 is speaking of a different type of justification. We've covered that in James. We, we don't really have the, the, uh, the time to do that tonight. When Paul discusses the antithesis, justification by faith or justification by works, he'll make it very clear that it's not by works, but by faith that a person is justified. He does it in Romans 3.20. In case this may be the only time you're with me, uh, write these down. Romans 3.20, Romans 3.28, Romans 4.2, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.11 and 12. All those passages, not to mention Ephesians 2.8 and 9, all those passages, Paul very explicitly states that salvation or justification is by grace through faith, not by virtue of works. So again, verses 12 and 13 tell us that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you had the law or did not have the law. If you've sinned, you're condemned. And again, he's, he's establishing that principle before he ever tells us, almost, oh, by the way, you were born condemned because of Adam's original sin. So he establishes that first. Now look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, are a law in and of themselves. In that they show that the work of the law, here's a key phrase, one of the key phrases in all the New Testament, I think, written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Paul has just now stated that whether a person sinned in ignorance of the law or knew the law, hence whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, he'll be treated as a transgressor or a sinner if he conducts himself in a manner contrary to God's holy law. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. And God's judgment shows no favoritism. But, you may say, someone might, might raise an objection, is this fair to the Gentile? How can you say that you're just as guilty if you didn't know the rules? How can you blame me for breaking the rules if I didn't know the rules? That's a fair question, don't you think? I think it's a fair question. Maybe if I wouldn't have read ahead, I, I might have asked that to Paul too. Well, how can you blame the Gentile? You're, you're saying he didn't have the law. How can you blame somebody for breaking the law if they don't know the law? Well, Paul's going to answer that. In verses 14 and 15, he's going to demonstrate that this objection is not valid. And here's why. Even though the Gentile does not have the, the law as it was originally written on tablets of stone, the Mosaic law, God wrote the moral law on his heart, which is here a reference to the conscience. He writes on the heart a basic sense of right and wrong. He doesn't permit even the Gentile to remain altogether without a testimony concerning God. This accounts for the fact that the Gentiles are a law unto themselves or a law for themselves. 
by nature, that is, without prompting or guidance coming from any written code. Therefore, in a sense of spontaneity, a Gentile will at times do certain things required by God's law. I want you to, don't, don't let that slide past you so fast you don't think of it till you're on your way home. Yes, I did say that. A Gentile, an unbeliever, can almost by accident do something that's good. I didn't say that he could do something that was going to earn favor with God. But yes, an unbeliever can do something that's noble. They do it all the time. An unbeliever can, can risk their life for someone else. An unbelieving husband can be loving to his wife and sacrificial to his wife. An unbeliever can do acts of kindness because they've got this law written on their hearts. Now, those acts don't gain them any favor with God. Don't, don't misunderstand me there. But this passage is telling us that, yes, they can do things that are good. Not that it gets them anywhere. He can be kind to his wife and his children. An unbeliever can have a heart for the poor. An unbeliever can promote honesty in government. Yesterday I was listening in the afternoon to, to one of the afternoon radio talk shows that I like to pick up uh, later on in the afternoon, and, and I thought the guest on the show didn't know who it was, but I thought they were absolutely brilliant. I mean, this was a brilliant person that, that totally understood the Middle East. Again, I didn't, didn't know who it was, had no clue, didn't recognize his voice, but he definitely understood the Arab mind, and he understood Islam. And then finally, when they came back from a break, it was Benjamin Netanyahu. I thought, well, yeah. <laughs> no wonder that he certainly understands the Middle East. But I, I know a man who's had breakfast with Benjamin Netanyahu. And at, at least at this point in his life, Benjamin Netanyahu is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably not even a real strong Orthodox Jew, but a good man and a very wise man and a very capable leader. He's got things written on his heart that he knows are absolutely true. Let me illustrate it this way, and then we'll probably, time permitting, talk about it a little bit more next week. This is some, this is some work from Jay Bujaszewski, who talks about, from a Christian perspective and a biblical perspective, there being uh, two levels to the conscience. What, what Bujaszewski calls the deep conscience and the superficial. Now, what Bujaszewski is speaking of when he writes, for example, in the book entitled uh, What You Can't Not Know, or Written on Their Hearts, uh, The Case for Natural Law, one of his uh, second book, um, Revenge of the Conscious, uh, Politics and the Fall of Man. Those are three books by Bujaszewski I'd recommend any believer read. But he breaks down this passage right here and, uh, and helps us to understand that there are two levels to the conscious. A, there's a deep conscious, and it's in this deep conscious that God, God wrote the law on their hearts. But, but something happens between the deep conscious and the superficial conscious. Have you ever heard the, the objection to this moral argument for the existence of God? People say, well, listen, more, morality is relative. And you may say, well, I know cultures where they say it's okay to steal. And it's okay to murder people. Now, I'd really like to get at the heart of those cultures because once you examine them, once anthropologists have really examined them, a lot of times they feel like it's okay for them to steal from someone else, but they sure don't like it when someone steals from them. Okay. It's okay for them to kill someone else, but they don't like it when somebody comes after them. It's okay for them to take someone else's wife, but you take one of theirs, usually one of theirs, and they'll come after you and kill you because in their sense of justice. So I would question, in, in terms of historical validity, whether those things are actually true, whether those objections are true. 
But what Bujasevsky says is, just in case they were, what happens is the deep conscious has very basic principles written on it, as, as per Romans 2.15. Things like, it's wrong to harm an innocent, innocent person. You know that deep down in your soul, that it is wrong to harm someone. It's wrong to beat up on someone that's not as strong as you are. That's something that's written in your heart. That's what C.S. Lewis, one of his main arguments for the existence of God was the moral argument for the existence of God, saying we know deep down that there's a moral law, and if there's a moral law, there's a moral law giver. You can, you can have people all day long that say that morality is relative, that it, it depends on the culture as to what is really right and wrong. I challenge you. I challenge you to take that person. This is a bit crude, but I've had to do it. I, I told one person that, that, that said that to me. I said, okay, can you ever think of a culture or a circumstance where it would be okay to take an innocent, a totally innocent two-year-old child, put a gun to their head, and blow their brains out? And they said, no. I can't think of any possible culture where that would be okay. And they were almost offended at my illustration. But I say, I'm just as offended at you saying that, that there is a culture that that could be okay in. It's because, see, deep down in your heart, you know that's not right. Now, what the difference between the deep conscious and the superficial con conscious is that sometimes we have to learn things with regard to morality. Sometimes we learn truly by experience. Most of the time we're taught that. A, a parent may say, you know, a, a child knows deep down that it's wrong to hurt someone else, but then that little child comes and starts beating up on his little sister. The parent may teach the child that, listen, beating up on your little sister is wrong because you shouldn't hurt someone that can't defend themselves. They're innocent. They haven't done anything. Do you see the, the illustrations here? I'll, I'll go into a little bit more next time uh, because we need to. I, I would like to finish verses 15 and 16 tonight, but this is what Paul's talking about. There are certain basic moral principles that have been written on the hearts of everybody that has ever been born, that have to do with basic morality, that you don't have to be taught. And so that's why Paul says the Gentiles without excuse, even though the Gentile didn't have the law, even though the Gentile didn't have a moral code that was written down, Paul says they have one written on their hearts. So they're not, they don't have an excuse. They sin against their own consciousness. Consciousness. They, they don't necessarily sin against a written code. But deep down, they know it's wrong. So therefore, they are without excuse. And Paul says that they're conscious, bearing witness. And their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. Even the unbeliever who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Now, the believer, if we remember, Paul is writing two believers about unbelievers here. Two believers about unbelievers. But if we left that for just a second, and you allowed me to make an application to the believer... Put that other thought on hold. Let me make it the same application to the believer. Once a person becomes a believer, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And the Holy Spirit works through our conscience, telling us that you know that's wrong. Or, yes, you're doing the right thing. And it's, you know, sometimes commercials try to personify this, you know, with a little one person saying, right, buy that car, buy that car. The other say, no, you can't afford it. You can't afford it. Well, the Holy Spirit works through the conscience and says, you know that that's wrong. Confess it. Confess it and move, move back the other direction. And so, but, but again, we're talking about unbelievers here. That's why Paul doesn't mention the Holy Spirit in verse 15. But for an unbeliever, their consciences bear witness and, and alternately, alternatively either accusing them, saying you're, you know that that's sinful, 
Or say, yes, that's part of my moral law. That's why an unbeliever can do good things. They can. If they, go, if they are acting consistently with the moral law that's written in their heart. But never think that an unbeliever can do something that's good in the sense of earning favor with God. The reason I bring this up, sometimes people will say, all the unbeliever can do is sin. There is nothing that the unbeliever can do that is not sinful. <clears throat> that's always bugged me. I know that's a, that's a theological, philosophical argument, but it's not a very practical one. Because I've witnessed unbelievers do things that are not evil, that are not sinful, that, that are good, but they're not meritorious. That's the, that's the difference. No unbeliever can do anything that earns them any favor with God. God just turns an eye towards it and says, well, that's, that's neat, but didn't earn any favor with me. You see? Okay. God's judgment shows no uh, favoritism. In verse 16, Paul says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Verse 16 actually is a completion of a sentence that begins much earlier, but, um, but he's speaking of those who have no excuse because the law is written on their heart. They, are, they, know that, they know deep down they've done wrong if they're being honest with themselves. Now, by the way, there's a way to, to um, circumvent this whole procedure, and you can self-deceive. You can be self-deceptive and say, well, no, I don't, I don't believe that there's a moral law. But deep down they do. Have you ever talked to someone who truly doesn't believe they've ever done anything wrong? I haven't. I have talked to people who don't believe that the things they've done wrong have caused them any trouble with God. You know, I mean, how, you know, I just did it. I'm not nearly as bad as them. You get back into Paul's argument here. But I've never met anybody that didn't think they did, that they were perfect. And that's because they're at least being, for that moment, honest. So I don't know that you have to dwell a real long time on the fact that someone is sinful. I mean, I think it needs to be established that those sins separate them from God. But they know that they're sinful. If they deny it, also I want you to know, just like if they deny that, that there's a God that exists, know deep down that they know there is, if they deny that they've committed things that would separate them from God, know deep down that their conscience convicts them that they have done those things. And as has happened very, very recently in an example I can tell you about, sometimes people will get really, really angry when you talk about spiritual things with them. And they'll say, you are a Christian, you're being so judgmental. How can you do that? You know, how, what, what kind of God do you worship that would send people to hell like that? And you may be taken back. You say, why, why are you so mad at me? I'm trying to help you. You know why they're mad at you? Because you represent God right then. You're, you're representing someone that they hate. And Jesus said, I'm the master, you're the servant. Why do you think they're going to treat you well if they treat me poorly? Not if you're really representing me. Don't be offended at that. That's part of being a Christian. That's part of doing God's work. If they get mad at you because you point out something that their deep conscience knows, all you're doing is trying to help them. Now, you can do it in a, in a mean way and don't do that. But So Paul says that that's why the Gentile is, is condemned. They know they're condemned because of their conscience. And now we get to the judgment, the final judgment. So the meaning of verse 16 is along this line, that on the day of the great white throne, 
judgment, which is Revelation 20. All men's thoughts, words, actions, motivations, and God's evaluations, for that matter, will become clear. It is on that day that God will judge not only men's open deeds, but also men's secrets. Again, remember in this whole box that we started last time, the, the, the box of context, we're in there a judgment section. And, and we're talking about God's be, God being the perfect and fair judge. So when Paul concludes this section and says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus, again, we're going to get a fair evaluation. He's telling those folks, God knows what's going on. This is, this is not like when you back when you were in high school and you could schmooze up to the teacher and get a good grade. God knows whether you did your homework or not. You're going to get exactly the grade that you deserve. He knows whether you cheated on the test or not. You're going to get exactly the grade you deserve, whether it was done openly or in secret. That's what he's telling the moralist as we close this passage out. So again, Paul makes the point, God is the perfect judge. His evaluations are always fair and are based on fact, not fiction, truth, not falsehood. And God's evaluations are always impartial. Now, there's a few closing matters that we need to cover in the next three or four minutes, and then we'll let you go. The first is that I want you to notice that God will judge through Jesus Christ. The emphasis is on the fact that God the Father will judge mankind through his Son, Jesus Christ. And while this passage speaks directly of the unbeliever, remember he's talking to believers about unbelievers. So it's specifically about the unbeliever. When this is brought up that things that are done in secret or things that are done openly are going to be judged by Jesus Christ, the Father's going to judge you through Jesus Christ, we as believers ought to perk up too. Because while we won't be at the great white throne judgment, there is an evaluation that we will be attending. And the same principles hold true for that evaluation. Now, in your evaluation in mind at the great at the judgment seat of Christ, rather the bema, one of our evaluations won't be that we don't have righteousness, we don't have justification, and we're going to be condemned to hell. That's not even a possibility. But for us too, when we leave this life after the rapture, before the second coming, we're going to go through an evaluation as well, and that evaluation is going to be totally fair for us too. And the things we've done in secret are going to be brought out. The things that we've done in the daylight are going to be brought out too. The things that you've done that nobody knows about. I'm talking about primarily good things right now. You don't have to worry about God not catching them. Or somebody not keeping score. I wonder if he knows that I witnessed to that person. Nobody else knew about it. Well, God does. So, see, for us too, God is a perfect judge. His evaluations are going to be always fair and based on fact, not fiction, truth, not falsehood. So you can be assured at the judgment seat of Christ that you're going to be perfectly evaluated. Now, that might make you nervous. Maybe we don't want a perfect evaluation. We want a merciful evaluation. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's going to be that too. It's going to be perfect, but it is going to be merciful. And my feeling is it's going to be a lot more merciful than some of us think, uh, at least most of the circles that we run in. So, the, But the evaluation will be through Jesus Christ. Remember what 2 Corinthians 5.10 said about the judgment seat. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Each individual is judged on the basis of his or her behavior, 
And I believe that this is once habitual behavior, not necessarily individual acts, because individual sins have already been judged. They're not going to be brought up again per se at the judgment seat. But overall movements of one's life, I believe, will be brought up. And all I'm saying about that as we, as we change context ever so slightly is that the believer's evaluation at the judgment seat is going to be just as fair and, and impartial as the unbeliever's judgment will be at the great white throne. Because for God, the darkness and the light are both alike. Darkness hides things from us, but not from God. And he says as such in Psalm 139, 12. And so Christ is going to judge both the things that are in secret and the things that are not. And finally, Paul adds this phrase, according to my gospel. And you might think, what does the gospel have to do with judgment? Now, why did he even have to throw that in there? Well, the gospel, which does mean good news, is nevertheless incomplete without the understanding that every person will be held accountable. The truth of Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection is not something that can be simply ignored by people. People say, oh, I don't want to think about that today. You know, I'll think about that next year. I'm busy with my business now. But you know what? You can't ignore it. It's kind of like that beach ball of, of truth about God existing. You can try to hold it under the water, but it's going to pop up. It's there. You've got to do something with the cross of Jesus Christ. You either have to accept him and his work, or you reject it outright. You can't be neutral about it. And here's what's breaking my heart as I watch the Christian community now, particularly Christian messengers. That's what I am as a messenger. I'm not supposed to be up here telling you my own story, my, my own philosophy. All I'm supposed to be doing is telling you what's in the Word of God. Too many, far too many Christian me messengers today are purposefully omitting any teaching on judgment from their sermons because, in their words, according to one Fox News article about a very well-known Houston pastor, I don't intend, he says, to be negative in any way. I will not say any negative thing whatsoever to my, con to my congregation. It's the Robert Schuller, Norman Vincent Peale School of Christianity. And what I'm saying is, if you give the gospel and you don't make someone understand, if they don't already understand, that there are consequences to the choices they make, you have lied to that person and you have changed the word of God. Some people are changing the word of God to draw a, a humongous crowd. And because we have humongous crowds being drawn, baseball stadiums being rented to have Easter services, somehow we're, we're being drawn into a false sense of security that Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds in the United States. It's very visible. But according to a study that George Barna just put out, and it's available at his website, or by virtue of his newsletter. Barna is, a, is the premier Christian researcher, pollster. The number of unchurched adults since 1991 in the United States has nearly doubled. Listen, the number of unchurched adults in the United, in the United States since 1991 has nearly doubled. So we've got churches that are getting huge, 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that Christianity is growing. And, and, and where these people are coming from, I don't know. I think it's church swapping, you know, which is just one notch above wife swapping as far as I'm concerned. You know, all they're doing is, is having a better dog and pony show and pulling people away from one and, and being the big dog on the block. And in order to do that, and I'm not making this up, I mean, one of them was quoted in Fox News, on Fox News as saying, I, I will not say anything negative or judgmental in my sermons at all. Well, that's not the word of God. Paul says, there's a price to pay. And there will be a day, and he calls it on that day. On that day, when according to my gospel, which includes both good news, but it has some, there, there is accountability there, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So now we've finished two categories of persons. The immoral person stands in need of a Savior. Now we've finished the section that, that teaches us that the moral person, too, stands in need of, a, need of a Savior. Whether that person is Jew or Gentile, remember this was a tran, transitory, or transition rather, paragraph, next week we'll start the fact that the Gentile needs a Savior. The moral man is condemned as well as the immoral man. For even though he judges the immoralist in the things that the immoralist does, he is guilty of the same things. The moralist judges wrongly. But to sum this paragraph, this chapter up, up to this point up, God is the perfect judge. Again, his evaluations are always fair and based upon fact, not fiction, truth, not falsehood. And God's evaluations are always impartial. Tom Peeler.